At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If I say that the inanimate universe is just the extrinsic appearance of uh, universal conscious processes, universe, let's, let's call it a universal thought, then the fact that the universe is dynamic, it's behaving, it seems to have exploded from an infinitesimal point uh, uh, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, galaxies have formed, it's, it's doing something. So if that's the appearance, then what is going on from within? I think from within, what these images suggest is that um, the universal mind, albeit being instinctive, it's just a natural mind, not a mind like ours, it doesn't seem to be very comfortable or content, because otherwise it wouldn't change its state. And the fact that its appearance is changing all the time suggests very strongly that there is a continuous change in its internal state. So it suggests to me that it's not quite comfortable. There is a instinctive impetus towards change. Now, I don't think it has a plan that it knows where it's going and how to achieve it, because, you know, this kind of premeditated thinking, higher level thinking, metacognitive thinking is something that cost nature three and a half billion years on this planet to evolve. In other words, us. So if it were there from the beginning, you know, why all this, this, this carnage for three and a half billion years uh, on this planet? So I don't think it has a plan, but it's uncomfortable. And as it is uncomfortable, it moves instinctively. And that movement has eventually led to us with our ability to metacognize and contemplate the universe and say, this is what's happening, is this good or not? That was a clip from Derek's Myth Vision podcast. The brilliant Bernardo Castrop explains his philosophy of idealism and suddenly takes a Gnostic turn. Sure, everything is the universal mind expressing itself, exploring itself, but something is profoundly wrong. It's uncomfortable lost almost as it manifests the universe for billions of years until it has created us atom splitting world destroying neurotic monkeys we're all the devil's children we find what powers the sun and we make bombs of it we achieve power and we go mad we always destroy relates perfectly with what Stephen Davis said in my book voices of Gnosticism. God went crazy and became us. We're fucked. Religions continue to give us their gorgon shit that the divine has a sound plan. Secularism is just as bad because it assumes a universe of elegant math and laws of physics. An honest look at the cosmos tells a different story. It's worse than even what you say, Rick Sanchez, because nihilism is off the table since there is a designer, 
unintelligent, uncomfortable, perhaps craving for its mother Sophia, manifesting as each one of us in the 21st century in one last violent thrust of understanding. I think human consciousness was a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. It's so obvious. God went crazy and became us. The universal mind. Are we really fucked, though? Shit. I am a dinosaur 65 million years ago gazing up at a falling asteroid. I am a silicon-based alien in a parallel dimension with the New York Times saying God is dead. I am Charlemagne and Joan of Arc and Jimi Hendrix. I am a kid being sexually abused in a closet at my godmother's house. I am the all. I am God. Or as the Gospel of Eve says, I am thou, and thou art I. And where thou art, there am I. And I am sown in all things. And whence thou wilt, thou gathers me. But when thou gathers me, then gathers thou thyself. One day you'll realize that you've had not just one or two past or future existences, but that you were and are everybody and everything that has ever been or will ever be. I now understand what you're saying, thunder perfect mind. As you state in your text, you are everything and, and, and you're uncomfortable, fragmented. I am the all. I am insane. Krishna high on meth knowing himself. I am Jesus and want to go to Venus. Leave Levon far behind. Take a balloon and go sailing while Levon slowly dies. There comes the asteroid. I am uncomfortable. We're being raped, thunder. I am the all. I am insane. I am human. I am. You seem to alternate between viewing your own mind as an unstoppable force and as an inescapable curse. And I think it's because the only truly unapproachable concept for you is that it's your mind within your control. You are the master of your universe, your enormous mind literally vegetating by your own hand. As Simon Magus said in his great declaration, Thou and I art but one. We are together, and we know the truth now. Being the universe screaming in those birth pangs Paul and Philip K. Dick wrote about. So what do we do? We take the path of Gnosis here at A.M. Bite. Will that help? Of course, as you will see. In this special show, a summer celebration. It's a double header with two unparalleled minds when it comes to the Gnostics who figured out the state of the universe 2,000 years ago 
before Bernardo or Rick Sanchez. When you know nothing matters, the universe is yours. And I've never met a universe that was into it. The universe is basically an animal. It grazes on the ordinary. Creates infinite idiots just to eat them. You know, smart people get a chance to climb on top, take reality for a ride, but it'll never stop trying to throw you. And eventually it will. There's no other way off. First, we are honored to have back Dr. David Brackey to the virtual Alexandria. His book, The Gnostics, is a must-have in understanding those ancient heretics. Just as cool, David is the editor of the second edition of the invaluable The Gnostic Scriptures, out as we speak. After David's mind-expanding, reality-dispanding interview, we will pivot to Earl Fontanelle, host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Secret History of Western Esotericism. Like Philip K. Dick, my job at Aeon Bite is to bring Gnostic Gnosis in a trashy form. The Secret History of Western Esotericism is fun and often deeply weird, too. But Earl takes understanding the Gnostics and other spiritual off-worlders to some sophisticated levels. Do the chickens have large talons? Both interviews are non-linear, casual, and humor-filled. But preggers with perceptive insights on the Gnostics and aha moments, whether you're a novice or an expert in the topic. It's a summer special and a gift to you for being here in this odyssey of madness. or whatever manifestation you are of the universal mind. Are you really sure this will help in the plight of the universe? Of course it will. Gnosis is the way. And as Dick also said, since the universe is made of information, then it can be said that information will save us. Maybe even restore God to sanity. And it is possible, according to Jacob Beme and the Talmud. Look how he spends his time. 43 species of parrots. Nipples for men. Slugs. Slugs! He created slugs. They can't hear. They can't speak. They can't operate machinery. I mean, are we not in the hands of a lunatic? It's about understanding information. The crazy God. And in essence... It's about understanding ourselves. No one did self-knowledge like the Gnostics, those primordial depth psychologists, as Jung called them. Know yourself, and you'll know God. Find how to individuate the universal mind. I am the supreme being. I'm not entirely dim. Back to Stephen Davis, as he said in his great work on the secret book of John. True introspection on the part of humans is a quest for self-understanding on the part of God, reversing the fall of God's wisdom into our human mode of consciousness. Enlightened human consciousness is wisdom in the Pleroma, 
Normal human consciousness is wisdom fallen and living in an illusory material world. Thus, there is no difference between psychotherapy for God and salvation for humans. Human beings are the state that Godhead finds itself in when God forgets who God is. Self-knowledge is the key to the Gnostic religious quest, but not self-knowledge as an egocentric, personal, or individual matter. Rather, self-knowledge as the realization of our origin in God and our destiny to return there again. Egocentricity is a result of the arrogant attempt to know God as an object. Ego is the name for the continuing error that presents to the mind an external world. Projected outward, ego is demiurge, a false divine self, a false god. Insofar as there is an external world, there is an external god. Indeed, a vast series of gods, angels, demons, and archons. Suppose there is a universal mind controlling everything. Now, every particle has an antiparticle. Its mirror image, its negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Simple as that, oh you of the broken places. Hermes wouldn't have it any other way. We are legion, disassociative fragments of a fallen god seeking mother wisdom, rolling the dice with Mercury to restore the universal mind and hope we don't liquefy the multiverse with our hadron colliders or shitty pop music. I mean, how insane do you have to be to imagine something like Taylor Swift? I haven't got a brain! Hmm, imagine? Imagination. That's the other element of Gnosis. Yes, imagination. What William Blake said was our divine spark. What brings forth art and invention that changes the universe for the better. Reminds the other lost fragments of the universal mind of something better. Imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality, as the Cheshire Cat said. And W.B. Yeats did write, Whatever we build in the imagination will accomplish itself in the circumstances of our lives. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? Self-knowledge and imagination, those two pillars of Gnosis. Nothing else matters, and the universe depends on us finally leaning on these. Or maybe I'm just speculating in a very Gnostic fashion. My imaginative contemplation for self-knowledge. The dinosaurs never died. The boy was never sexually abused. Jesus loves Levon. 
Everything is fine. Everything is okay, as religions and secularists claim. Just look out to our world. Everything is fine, right? But if I'm anything close to being right, and you go deeper with our interviews in this special show, then you might wake up more, and for the first time in three and a half billion years, feel truly good. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the honor and the great pleasure of having back Dr. David Bracky. David, thank you for coming on after too long of a pause. I've missed talking to you, Miguel. It's great to be back. Oh, great to have you back and very excited for, uh, well, the topic will be the Gnostics, but a lot going on. But first, we also have got the Moondog, Van Sachi. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Always in a good mood when I'm going to hear about a lot of good Gnostic stuff. So here we go. (laughs) You will. You will. So awesome. Well, David, why don't we start with the Gnostic scriptures, the great book. I am holding a copy in my hand, a beaten up copy because I've read it so many (laughs) times. And uh, by the time this interview is out, uh, we will have a second edition, right, that you were involved in. That's right. Um, yeah, the first edition was published in 1987. Oh, wow. So it's been a long time. And uh, yeah, I, I think you'll like the new edition. The, um, it's well produced. It looks good. I'm really happy about it. I actually have a copy. Oh, so, lucky you. so yes, yes. And how did you get involved uh, with this project? Well, you know, Bentley Layton, who did the 1987 book, was my dissertation advisor. He was my doctoral, as we say in academia, Dr. Fater. And uh, and there is a story about this. When um, in back in 1986, when I was thinking about where to go to grad school, I actually made a visit to Yale, to New Haven, to decide whether I should be a doctoral student there. And while I was visiting Bentley, Bentley Layton handed me the manuscript of the Gnostic scriptures and said, this will be coming out next year, I think. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I didn't really, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really quite understand the significance of what I was looking at. You know, it was a big, it was many, many pages of a typescript, typescript. It was 1986 and this happened. Um, so anyway, it came out in 1987. It was great. And, uh, and we can talk about why it was such a significant book in those times. But, um, but after the Gospel of Judas appeared in 2006, and I had been, and other people had been teaching with the Gnostic scriptures for all these years, I said to, to, to Leighton, I said, you really need to add the Gospel of Judas to the book and bring out a second edition. But he had really moved and still has. I mean, he has moved past Gnosticism. He has other things he's working on. So he was not at all interested in doing this. And I bugged him about it for a few more years. And finally, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2012, 2013, I said to him, you know, if you don't mind, I'd be glad to make the second edition. And Mm. And he was like, yes, that would be great. You go do it. (laughs) So, um, so yes, so that's how I got involved is that, uh, you know, I wanted him to do it. I 
tried to persuade him to do it. He was not at all interested in doing it. But eventually I said, well, what about me doing it? And he's been completely supportive since then and offered me advice and so on. But, um, but yeah, that's how it all happened. Huh. And so for this edition, you basically, your job was to add what three, three new texts, including the gospel of Judas. Right. I mean, uh, first there were errors. <laughs> right. So there, always you know, is, things, yeah. there always are. And it's kind of funny um, over the years, Bentley Layton, he has noticed errors in the book and he had a copy of the book in which he'd write down all the things that needed to be corrected in a second edition. But there were, and he gave me that obviously, but then he started finding these other copies of the book where he had made additional notes about errors. <laughs> so I think eventually I ended up with like four copies of the book that he, in which he had written, you know, made notes on things that needed to be changed for the second edition. So I had all those things. I updated all the bibliographies, right? Cause there are lots of bibliographies of, of things to read and so forth. And that needed to be updated. But yes, then I added um, three texts, Gospel of Judas, which of course was not available in the 1980s. And, um, and I added two other texts that, um, that were available then, but were not in the original book. I, primarily because uh, Doubleday, which published the book then, now it's Yale University Press. But Doubleday was like, we don't, it's just gonna be too big. Um, but these are two texts that both I and other teachers and users of the book have really missed having in the book. And so one is what's called the Tripartite Tractate, which is a very mm -hmm. long Valentinian text from Nag Hammadi, which is the only complete narration of the Gnostic myth by Valentinian that survives from antiquity. So it's really important. And the other was, uh, is this book called uh, Excerpts from Theodotus by Clement of Alexandria, which is a kind of collection of excerpts from Valentinian theologians that Clement, who was an enemy of the Valentinians, but nonetheless created this thing, which has a lot of interesting stuff about baptism and ritual and other kinds of things in Valentinianism, which I think are very useful to the reader. So, so those are the three things that I added along with doing all this other stuff that I, that I mentioned. So the other good thing I should mention about the new edition, the second edition, is that um, I'm sure you love the first edition, but you know, the font in the original edition is kind of small. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, as I become more mature, I find it more <laughs> challenging to read. And I actually find that for some of the like marginal annotations, which are even in a smaller font, I need to pull out a kind of magnifying glass to really make sense of them. So, so the second edition has a much larger and clearer font. So it is way easier to read. So that also is a good thing. What about the numbers on the inside? Are they still there? <laughs> they are gone. Oh, my goodness. God. Okay, wonderful. well, I, I should clarify. Um, the marginal annotations that give references or line numbers, that's all there. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing about the first edition where the numbers of the pages uh, yeah. were inside the thing so that if you were like saying, look at page 99, it was really hard to find. <laughs> that has been solved. And yeah. they are the page numbers are now in the outer corners where they should be. So when you say, look at page 320, it's easy to find. 
So, <laughs> uh, life so, is good. Life is good. So, and I have to just give prop, complete props and thanks to Yale University Press and the people who work there because they were completely devoted to making this a perfect book. So they, they were great. Well, you heard it here, audience. I'm going to get another copy. I advise you to get a copy too, because uh, this is good stuff. And just out of curiosity, how did you become interested with the Gnostics? Or in the too interested well, in that's the Gnostics? A, that's a you know great question. And um, essentially what happened was when I entered doctoral studies back in the mid-1980s at Yale, I kind of, I, I was interested in, Christian apocryphal literature, you know, literature outside the New Testament, but not necessarily in Gnostic literature per se. But um, but then what happened was I had to learn Coptic, you know, and uh, Leighton is one of the greatest Coptologists in the world, that is. And so I learned Coptic and you kind of end up reading Gnostic literature from learning Coptic. And the more I read it, the more I found it fascinating and fun and interesting and of course there's a lot of stuff in it that's not clear and you're not quite sure what it means which is always <laughs> fun to do so I, I got into it through the language oddly enough um, but once I had gotten into it through the language um, I was hooked and I became really interested in the ideas and uh, the stories and the myth and and all that stuff so. Awesome. Well, we're glad that this happened. And in the last, let's say, five years or so, are there any ideas on the Gnostics that you have made, uh, I'm not saying a 180 degree turn, but maybe adjusted <laughs> your views, anything like that, David? Um, well, you know, I have, um, in addition to Gnost doing the second edition of the Gnostic Scriptures, my other big project for the last few years has been a new translation and commentary on the Gospel of Judas, uh, which will come out probably early in 2022, also from Yale University Press in their Anchor Yale Bible series. And, um, and I would say that the Gospel of Judas has indeed kind of um, strongly affected the way I think about the Gnostics. And um, it it has really made me more and more, well, I, I see them more and more as heavily indebted to what we call kind of Jewish apocalyptic literature, um, you know, to, to literature about angels and stars and the heavens. Um, you know, we've always thought about the Gnostics as very Platonist, you know, they're very indebted to Plato and stuff right. like this. But, um, but I'm, uh, you know, th this has really made me more and more convinced that they, um, that they have drawn a lot from, even more from ancient Judaism than we have previously thought. Now, I think the Gospel of Judas really helps us to see that. Really? What are some of the hints of that? I mean... It's a very odd, I mean, even like Nicola Denze Lewis said, it's a very odd scripture. It's almost like a, a, a Sethian, but a breakaway Sethian Sethian that just uh, moved even more outside. And it's a very stark uh, uh, writings. But why do you say it's more indebted to Judaism? 
Well, it it is. I mean, what Nicola Nicola's description is, I think, correct. But of course, you know, in in the book that I have coming out on Judas, I'm going to argue we need to think about that differently. Instead of saying, oh, Judas kind of departs from Sethianism, we need to see it as also constitutive of what Sethianism is, right? Um, it, it appears later to us only because we discovered it later, but you mm-hmm. know, it's very early. Okay, so here's the thing. The most, if you read the Gospel of Judas, perhaps the thing that is the most different from what you're used to if you've read like, the Apocryphon of John and Reality of the Rulers or Hypostasis the Archons is that the myth or the story of wisdom, Sophia, generating Yaldabaoth and all that, that is not there. No. It's absent. And instead, Yaldabaoth, which they call Nabro, right? Which they say, it's some people call him Nabro, some call him Yaldabaoth. This is what Gospel Judah says. Um, instead is more like a rebellious angel, an angel that comes from God, but then rebels against God so that, so that there's no wisdom or any of that. And that kind of thing, the idea that, uh, that one of God's own angels could rebel against him and want to be in charge. Of course, we're familiar with that idea from Lucifer and so forth, right? But this is, this is something, something different. This is post-Lucifer. You know, that someone like that, that there's an angel like that, you see that in, say, the literature associated with Enoch, right, in ancient Judaism. This is the kind of, the idea that there are, that that the angels come from God, but that they have the ability to rebel against God and try to do their own thing. But isn't this so in Paul too? The God I, I totally agree. Yes, exactly so. So um, who was of course in a, a Jewish person of the right. first century. So um, so yes, I think um, I, I I think that Gospel of Judas helps us to see that that whole world that Paul is a part of is, is some of these Gnostics, these Sethian Gnostics, this is the world that they are a part of as well. Um, this idea of kind of um, that the stars also, the stars and the angels are created by God and put in charge of this world by him, but then the possibility of them revolting and turning against God is there. And in fact, at least one of them did this. So, excellent, and uh, and you still hold to um, the idea that Judas is more of a tragic figure because remember when it came out, you had Marvin Meyer who was kind of leaning towards the last temptation of Christ or Jesus Christ superstar Judas, mm-hmm. but then you had April DeConning saying, "No, he's a servant of the demiurge on Earth." Uh, you kind of take a middle road, don't you, David? Yes, and I still do, right? I haven't really changed on that one. Um, I think Judas is, um, uh, you know, in this way, it's not so different from what you find in the Gospels of the New Testament. What he had, to, what he did had to happen. That is, Jesus had to die, according to the Gospel of Judas, to bring an end to the rule of these bad angels and stars that guide us but um but it's still a bad thing to do so he does something that's wrong um but nonetheless it was something that that someone had to do 
And I remain convinced that when he's called, which he is in the Gospel of Judas by Jesus, the 13th daimon, the 13th demon, that this means that when these other rulers, Yaldabaoth and Sacklus and all these other people are overthrown, he himself, Judas, is going to have to kind of replace them, um, which is, you know, okay, but not as good as like being with God, you know? So, so anyway, so I still find him, as you say, a kind of tragic figure who did something that had to be done, but it's still a bad thing. And it's, it's the, the gospel of Judas may be good news, but it's not good news for Judas. (laughs) He had to take one for the team. He did, you know, and um, I think, um, you know, in the gospel of Judas, the reason Jesus talks with Judas so long is that Judas needs to, to understand why he needs to do what he needs to do, even though it's not, you know, good news for him. It's not, you know, yeah, in the Gospel of Judas, another main message, it's anti-apostolic, kind of like yes. Marcion, and yes. anti-sacrifice. Those are the two. Jesus cannot handle those two things. No, it's very, I mean, it's very critical of sacrifice. Um, and of course, Jesus, Jesus' death is talked about in this Gospel as a sacrifice, right? He says, Judas, you are going to sacrifice the human being who bears me. And so it's not a good thing. But um, it seems to bring to an end this regime of sacrifice and false worship that Nabro slash Yaldabaoth and Sacklas have imposed on human beings and to which we are enslaved. So, um, yeah, it's a, it doesn't like sacrifice and it doesn't like the disciples, <laughs> including Judas. I don't think it really likes Judas that much, but, you know, there you go fascinating and uh, we've been talking about the gnostics and we probably should clarify to the audience uh you take the same stance as bentley layton that when we are talking about the gnostics we are focusing primarily or um, almost exclusively on those that people are called the sethians right i mean even That's even right. when even when you, i was looking at the book i'm like I'm just used to thumbing and giving a scripture, but yeah, it starts out with classic Gnostic scripture and then it sort of spreads out, you know, the writings of Valentine is a school. So there's only one Gnostics and those are all the Sethian writings. That's correct. I mean, uh, yeah. So Bentley, um, he, uh, the, the plan of the book, the Gnostic scriptures does reflect the possibility of thinking about the term Gnostic applying to a wider group like Valentinus and the Valentinians and so on. But, but he really meant in that book to say that the, the people who called themselves and were known as Gnostics in the second century were what the people that, that modern scholars often refer to as the Sethians. And uh, yeah, I'm still into that. And uh, so, you know, so I'm, you know, as you, as you're well aware, there are scholars who don't want to call anybody Gnostics, right? They don't want to use the term at all. Michael and Williams, Elaine Michael Bacon, Williams, Karen King, yeah. Karen King <laughs> although she, you know, it's not always clear. I think Elaine Pagels has moved in that direction. Um, and then there are the people who continue to use it in a more expansive way. Um, and so, yeah, we, uh, I still use it, but for the group that we call the Sethians. Yes.
Mm-hmm. And uh, could you give maybe a brief description or characteristics of these Sethians? What makes them Sethians? Um, well, the reason we call them Sethians is that they often um, identify themselves as um, at least symbolically the descendants of Seth, um, Adam and Eve's third son after Cain and Abel. And even in the Gospel of Judas, um, the descendants or race of Seth are kind of an important um, group in heaven, if you want to, um, and the like. But um, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're, their characteristics are pretty easy to see. They believe that there's an ultimate divine being that's the source of everything, usually referred to as the great invisible spirit. Um, from whom emanates, first of all, a figure called the Barbelo Eon, um, or sometimes forethought. And then from the two of them emanate this being called the self-originate, and who often has four attendant angels with him. And that kind of is their kind of central concept of divinity, these people. But then, you know, they believe that there is this lower God who is hostile to human beings and rebellious against the true God, the invisible spirit, whom they usually call Yaldaboth or Nabro or Sackless. Um, but they themselves think of themselves uh, as kind of symbolically descendants of Seth. Um, Adam and Eve's third son, and um, and that's why we modern scholars and some ancient people, Epiphanius in the fourth century, refer to them as as Sapiens. So, yep, and they also seem to have had a kind of distinctive ritual of baptism that involves something called the five seals, which no one knows what those are. Uh, obviously not the animal. It's some sort of, you know, not five animals. <laughs> Train <but> five, seals. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. No, they are not five seals, even though it's baptism and there's water. They're not talking about seals, but uh, they're talking about some sort of sealing or, you know, um, uh, you know, some sort of enclosure. I don't know how to describe it, but anyway, something to do with five seals and so forth. But, you know, it's a little unclear, but they also have this kind of, concept of a baptism, a ritual that, that gets them all together. And all these things together make them a kind of distinct group, certainly different from, for example, the Valentinians, whom, who are the other group that's probably most prominently talked about when we talk about Gnostics in the ancient world. Yeah, and it certainly separates them from Christianity, even though in some texts, Jesus sort of vanishes. And uh, you still hold that it's basically... Uh, they started out Christian and then slowly were got moved to Platonism and Neoplatonism or. Yeah. This is the, this is the question of course is whether, question, and right. yeah. And you know, well, the gospel of Judas of course is super Christian, right? Jesus is all over the place. Right. Um, you know, this is the question is how would people and uh, you know, we t I remember talking about this a few years ago, how would people, who were totally into Genesis and indebted to the biblical tradition, how would they decide the creator of this world, the God of Genesis was not just a lower God, but really evil, hostile, a terrible being named Yaldabaoth. And, um, you know, I, I remain persuaded that you need for that to happen. You need something like 
you need Paul saying that the that Christians don't have to follow the law anymore and that there's something wrong with the law and the law comes through mediators, the law meaning the Old Testament, right? Um, or the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to Jews, you know, you are like your father, the devil, you know, that somehow the God of the Jews is satanic or something. And so I remain convinced that, um, that the kind of teachings we see associated with the people we call Christians, right, of course, but of course, you know, Paul and the author of the Gospel of John don't know that they're Christian, right, um, that something like that is the, is the, is, is what you need to make that identification of the creator God of Genesis as truly evil. So I, I do see them still as originating, we might say in a Christian environment, if we mean by that an environment in which Jesus is preached as somehow meaning that how we relate, how people relate to the Old Testament should change. Um, so I'm not persuaded by the idea that these are just Jews who've never heard about Jesus or Paul or the Gospel of John, who just, for whatever reason, decide the God their ancestors have worshipped for centuries is actually Satan. So, But later on, Jesus vanishes in the Sethian text. Yes. Uh, you know, by the time you get to what, you know, of course, all our dating of these texts is, you know, completely hypothetical, right? Um, but, you know, eventually when you get to texts like um, the Foreigner or Allegenes and Zostrianos, there's a lot less Jesus, right? <laughs> um, so, so you get the feeling that they're becoming less and less interested in being part of the world that we might call Christian. I mean, the Gospel of Judas, which I'm convinced is from the early to mid second century, I mean, it clearly cares about being about Christianity. I mean, the whole text is about these other followers of Jesus have it all wrong and we have it right. So they care very much about the idea that who's right about Jesus, right? But as you say, by the time you get to the mid to late third, third century, they, they are less and less, the Sethians are less and less interested in this question of them being the true Christians. And I think a lot of that must be due to the fact that now you have Valentinians who are really, really, really Christian, kind of offering a kind of form of Gnosticism or the Gnostic myth that is deeply Christian. So the people who really care about being Christian are probably by then Valentinians rather than Sethians. Right, stuck right. up Valentinians and Marcus the Magician's going around <laughs> getting all the girls and the Sethians yeah. are angry. Yes, they are so sad. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, one of the other great things about the Gospel of Judas, it appearing, is that it, it gives us at least a little bit of glimpse into real life. You know, that there are, other Christians, the Gospel of Judas, but otherwise, you know, Sethian literature is really not interested in talking about contemporary events or anything. So, you know, it's oh, no. it's a little frustrating for the historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's also interesting too. Uh, with the Church Fathers, you get the names of leaders from Carpocrates to Marcion to Basilides to Valentinus, but. We don't have one single Sethian leader, do we? 
that's that exactly weird? right. Are these yes. guys like a secret well, society or? <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's a good question. And, um, you know, there, there is some, um, one can argue that there, we may have a couple names of actual living Sethians. So, for example, the text Marsanes, which is a Sethian text, very, very fragmentary from Nakamati. It's not impossible that that's the name of a real human. It's possible. And um, Porphyry, you know, who writes in the third century about um, Plotinus, mentions some other names like Nicotheos that may be names of Sethianos. But otherwise, you're exactly right. We don't know names of any of these people. And part of it is that they clearly wrote, they wrote pseudonymously, right? They wrote in the name of other people, right? The Secret Book According to John and so forth, while Valentinians did not. Um, and of course, this failure, this this lack of any names of, of leaders of Sethian Gnostics has persuaded some folks that, that there was no group. You know, the, 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 you know, the Valentinians, we have names. We know they're a real community and they have meetings and so forth and so on. But, um, you, know, you know, there are scholars who are going to argue that Sethianism is a purely literary phenomenon carried out by isolated individuals who are kind of riffing off each other's works um, rather than an actual community. And that's why we don't have any names of people, which is, is, which is a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. I think it's less likely than the idea that they were a group, but it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. So in this case, Sethianism would be more like a kind of literary tradition and not an actual community or social organization or something like that. Michael Williams kind of, that's his, he kind of is of that ilk. But at the same time, David, uh... We do have pretty, I don't, I don't want to say decent, but we have constructs of Sethian rituals. They had to get together because uh, you break it down. You've got the Sethian style of the three Stellas of Seth with ornate rituals, people disguising themselves as God, baptism, oils, hymns, yada, yada. I mean, this was a party. And then you have <laughs> on the other side, you've got the sort of the, the emo people from Allogenes and Zoroastriana, it's all about contemplating one's mind until you have gnosis and that your mind is the mind of God. And if you contemplate your mind, you will be with God. And I love it. in Zoroastriana, it isn't really emo because he gets all depressed. He's suicidal and the angel of gnosis shows up. So, but the <laughs> point is there were rituals and groups doing these rituals. Yes. I mean, that's, that's your, your, you have well articulated my view, which is that even though we don't have any names of actual leaders, um, there's enough uh, evidence in their literature that they actually had like a baptism that was actually practiced. And, and of course, they refer to themselves with what we would call sectarian language, right? We are the, the descendants of Seth. We are the immovable race. So there is a sense of we, to the te whole text, to these texts, right? Um, you know, this could all be false, I suppose, but um, but I tend to think that probably it's not, that there really were people. Now, how many of these people were and all that stuff is is a different question, but no, exactly what you said. I, I tend to, to think that way. 
but but I want to you know say that they're perfectly reasonable historians and arguments on the other side. But but I'm with you on that question. Yeah, and again, I, I probably should stress we are talking about the Gnostics, and we should stress Gnosis, and even your course in your book. You talk about this was something shared with Neoplatonists, uh, the Sethians, or the, the Gnostics, whatever you want to call them, uh, the Hermetics. But there was part of Gnosis was, for example, you had uh, the Gospel of Thomas community, which is self-knowledge reveals the kingdom all around. But the other one, too, which you mentioned, which is really important, and I love how you put it, is the idea of... Uh, philosophically contemplating our mind right it's like our mind was the mind of god that's right um so yeah i mean you've made a very important point that um one of the least distinctive things about the gnostics is their interest in gnosis <laughs> right <laughs> because because everyone wants to offer gnosis which was simply knowledge of god right. and you know firsthand knowledge of god i mean everyone was offering i mean Irenaeus, the great enemies of the Gnostics. And by the way, today, the day you and I are talking to each other is the feast day of St. Irenaeus, the great oh, enemy wow, of the Gnostics of Valentinian. So yeah, very ironic. But anyway, <laughs> they were all into Gnosis. Everyone was, you know, that that's what, you know, people wanted to have. And that's what they offered. So yeah, no, they are not... Um, that is not what makes them distinctive. I mean, what makes them distinctive is this myth and these rituals that they do um, and so on. So you, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Their offering of gnosis is kind of ordinary, right? Um, but, um, well, not ordinary is the right word. They, they have plenty of other competitors in the world that are also, you know, saying this is what we have. Right, um, but but you are right. One of the one of the other thing that you just mentioned is also totally true, which is um, this is one of their distinctive features about how to find this gnosis, and that is indeed that our mind, our intellect, is indeed a kind of carbon copy of of God, right? Um, because God reproduces, you know, in their view, there's this ultimate source of everything, this great invisible spirit that we really can't know directly and is just beyond all description and so forth and so on. But how does it emanate or result in other things? Well, by reflecting on itself. And when it reflects on itself, it produces an image of itself, which is itself, but an image of itself. So kind of itself, but not itself at the same time. And that's how also we were generated. So we are all kind of little copies, you know, of God. And so if we want to understand, according to the Gnostics, if we really want to know what God is and, and what God is like, um, reflection upon our own mind is a path to doing that. Now, that, that it's, it sounds easy, but it's completely not easy, right? Um, and so they have to kind of talk about how you can do that, you know, and it, 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 based on their description, it takes patience and trial and error and so forth to, to do it. But yes, the path to God is our own selves for them. So, 
Yeah, it's yeah. not as easy as hi, I'm Miguel, I'm a Taurus. I was born on it. No, it is not at all, right? Because <laughs> <I'm> God. <laughs> right. Because the whole point is is that um, you know, in this world, um thanks to Yaldabaoth and his, you know, evil cronies, um, <laughs> we live in bodies and we have jobs and we <laughs> have to eat and all this. And it's, it's very easy to mistake all of that stuff for who we really are and what our true self is. And in fact, most human beings, that's what they do, right? Most human beings are living in ignorance, and they don't understand who they really are. Instead, they, they think that their aspirations to success in this world, their desire for sex and food and money and comfort and all that, that's, that they think is, is who they are and what they are. But of course, that's not true. And it's very, very hard to get beyond that. Well said indeed. And perhaps <laughs> one of those Sethians was named Vance. Vance, are you a Sethian? And do you have a question for David? <laughs> no, I don't think I'm a Sethian. They were a little bit too extreme for me. But uh, I was wondering when we we're talking about the leaders, how does John the Baptist tie in with the Sethians? Do you think he was uh, an early progenitor of them? Or was he a leader or unrelated? Or what, what's your opinion? That's a that's a great question, and um, you know, um, in my view, not at all that he doesn't have anything to do with these folks. But um, there, you know, the there, he was he was a person who was heavily indebted to you know obviously he was Jewish and he was indebted to kind of apocalyptic eschatological views and was into a baptism, right? Um, so I think some of his ideas provided a kind of model or provided, if we might say this, he's an example of a Jewish person who could start his own movement because he clearly had followers and so on. You see this, especially in the gospel of John, that John the Baptist had his own like followers that were rivals to the followers of Jesus, you know, who emphasized things like baptism and the coming end of the world and new revelations and so forth. So I think he's similar to them, but I don't think they're necessarily indebted to him. What you do find, of course, is a group that often is seen as Gnostic, which are the Mandeans right who come along in the like late fourth into the fifth century and they take totally take over john the baptist as their kind of hero right mm. um yeah so fascinating character john how the about the second temple destruction did they uh Scythians, um get involved with that did it spur the movement were they already around i'm not clear on what the timeline was Vance, that's great. And um, so um, as, as Miguel and I were discussing earlier, um, one very prominent hypothesis for how the Sethians came to be is that they are Jews who became disillusioned with the God of Israel. And often people will point to the destruction of the second temple in the year 70 as kind of the tipping point, right? The thing that that sent some Jews who already, thanks to reading Plato and so forth, were kind of wondering whether the God of Genesis is really that divine, but that that kind, if you want to put it this way, sent them over the edge, and they began to think, no, 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 the God of 
Israel is not the true God because why would he have allowed this temple to be destroyed and so forth? Um, so that's a very prominent hypothesis and is probably um, the best argument for the idea of the Sethians being, if we might put it this way, disaffected Jews rather than Christian, right? Not basing this on, you know, Christian teachings and so forth. Um, I'm not totally persuaded, mainly because if you read Sethian literature, there really isn't any discussion of the destruction of the temple. Now, there isn't. I mean, I'll just say there isn't any. There isn't. Um, the Gospel of Judas, possibly, because there's all that talk of sacrifice, and there's clearly something about the temple going on, right, in that, in that text. Um, so, but I tend to see the destruction of the temple in the year 70 as one of the events that propels kind of all the people who think Jesus is important to think in new and different ways. You know, I mean, what the gospel of John is probably the way it is in part because of the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And I think the gospel of John is just a major step towards what we call Gnostics and Gnosticism. So I think it's a crucial event. Um, but I see it kind of contributing to the wider development of Christ-believing people uh, and not necessarily the precipitating event of just the Gnostics. But if you go back in the history of scholarship, uh, one of the greatest early Christian scholars of the 20th century, Robert Grant, that was his hypothesis that really the destruction of the temple in the year 70 was kind of, for some of these Jews, that was it, right? They were like, okay, the last straw. <laughs> the last straw. It was the last demonstration that the God of Israel wasn't what he claimed to be. Right. <laughs> so, but you know, it's interesting. We, this is one of the things about doing history that you're never quite sure how to think about this. We look back at the year 70 and we see it as catastrophic because we know the temple will never be rebuilt. Well, I suppose. At this point, we think the temple will never be rebuilt. Kind of hard, right? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there. who knows what will happen, right? But anyway, but we know 2,000 years later, the temple has not been rebuilt, right? right. Um, we don't know, you know, I, they saw it as a horrible event, but they had seen, you know, they knew the temple had been destroyed once before and had been rebuilt. True. So you're just not quite sure if in the year 80, 90, 100, people at that time understood this thing as catastrophic as we now understood it to have been. And th this is part of the problem of doing history, right? That you, it's, it's hard to separate what we know from what they could have known at that time. That's a very good point. And uh, uh, one thing that I get asked a lot, David, is uh why are these uh gnostic scriptures sort of similar like on the origins of the war hypostasis of the archons a secret book of john and then of course you got the church fathers churning out these myths and they're kind of similar with barbello here but there's all these tweaks like they're writing fan fiction off of each other or something and uh I like how you say that, uh, that what the Sethians was doing was just doing a scientific experiment, right? They were being scientific. Right. I mean, uh, you know, people who challenge the idea that there is a Gnostic myth, right, will often say, well, why 
is the myth in the secret book according to Chan somewhat different from what you see in the hypostasis of the archons or reality of the rulers or in the gospel of Judas or in on the origin of the world and so forth and so on. And, um, and my analogy is indeed, as you put it, is with contemporary science. That is that scientists write based on their observation and their uh, reconstruction of what they think is the case. Um, you know, they're a hypothesis there. This is what is true. But they're always open to revising that as they learn new things, right? I mean, if there's anything we've learned in the last like 15 or 16 months, right, is that scientists revise things based on new information. All the time. Right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is what drives me crazy is these people like, oh, but they used to tell us we don't need masks, but now we do. Therefore, we can't believe anything they say is their deduction. And I'm like, that's, you know, people just, scientists make hypotheses, they learn new information, and they revise, right? Um, and the same thing I think is true in Gnostic literature, right? They write what, um, what they believe to be the case, and then someone has a new revelation or they contemplate more certain verses in Genesis and they think, oh, you know, I think this may be the case. And they revise. So I don't think it's, it's neither that they don't think the myth is true. This is the important thing. It's not that they think it's false. And so you can just say whatever you want, right? Um, and um, it's also not the case that they think it's like like fundamentalists see the bible right that it's literally absolutely the truth and it can never be altered right they see it as something that has been revealed to them but is always revealed to fallible human beings who can get new information and have new revelations and so forth um, so yes, I mean, the problem of the church fathers and how they differ from this literature is a whole nother issue. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Right. I mean, part of it surely is, is that people like Irenaeus and Epiphanius and Pseudo-Hippolytus, right, probably had available to them uh, Gnostic, Valentinian, whatever texts that we no longer have, right? I mean, you know. I mean, it's just amazing we have what we have, right? And it's important to realize we've all discovered these things only within the last, like, you know, 130 years, right? Um, so they probably have texts that we didn't have. Um, and also, of course, they read stuff and didn't really understand what they were reading, I think, at times. And uh, were reporting stuff they'd read some time ago but didn't have copies with them and stuff like that. And some of it, obviously, they just made up. <laughs> so, so you have all these problems with this with this literature. So, 
No, that makes sense. And another, uh, you might say, I don't want to call it romantic view, is that uh, Constantine and I think uh, Theodotus, the emperor, were running around with the sword killing Gnostics, and that's how they died and yada, yada. But I think with the Sethians, as you argue, it was more, they, it was more of a whimper than a bang, right? The, they couldn't compete with the Valentinians or the Manichaeans or the Neoplatonists. Right. I think new options came along, right? Um, the Valentinians, and you're exactly right to put your finger on the Manichaeans, especially, right? They were very active in Alexandria around that time. Yes. And, you know, the Manichaean religion, um, you know, originates mid-third century, but in the 300s, 400s, I mean, Manichaeism was a world religion that rivaled Orthodox Christianity in its spread and extent, right? So there were these other options available to them. I mean, and this loss of this literature, um, doubtless some heretical, as the Orthodox Church felt about them, some heretical texts were actively destroyed. There's no doubt this happened, right? But on the other hand, the big, the big issue simply is, is that people stopped copying them. You know, I mean, you've, you've got to have a market for your stuff to copy. And if the number of Sethians dwindles, then you just don't have people who are going to pay for it, right? So people just stopped copying this stuff, you know? Except for the yeah. Secret Book of John, that was popular by what, four copies we had? Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> of course. But of course, you know, compared to, you know, New Testament text, right. that's like <laughs> minuscule, right? But yes, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously, I, it, it has to be taken as a sign that of the respect and importance that was attributed to that work in antiquity. It, it has to be that we have um, four copies of it, right? Um, but, but, the, but the loss of Gnostic literature is, and any, and lots of early Christian literature, not just Gnostic, is, 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 primarily a function of the failure to copy you know and uh and you know it's it's sad and frustrating and and so it's always wonderful when new things pop up which you know is still the possibility always always there so yeah indeed indeed uh, again uh the Nag Hammadi was a treasure trove we should be very grateful for and it's still bearing fruit so it is indeed. And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, just to be clear, since, you know, this is, you know, we're talking about this because of the Gnostic scriptures, the second edition. Um, one of the things to, to realize if you're out there looking for things to read, right, where do you find these texts, right, is that um, these collections that are available to readers today vary in what they're trying to do. And uh, the Gnostic scriptures that, that I worked on that is revising Bentley's book is not simply Nag Hammadi, right? It, it doesn't include lots of Nag Hammadi texts and includes stuff that wasn't found in Nag Hammadi because it's organized around these groups, the Gnostics, the Valentinians, Basilides, Hermetica, the School of Thomas, and so forth and so on. But, um, but thank goodness we have books like, say, Marvin Meyer's The Nag Hammadi Scriptures that translates all the Nag Hammadi texts right there for a person to read. So, so you have all these options out there for how to access these texts today, which is great.
It is indeed. And uh, do you have any uh, texts that are your favorite that you really like? Oh, <laughs> is that a oh, that's loaded terrible. question? Yeah. It, well, I guess it's loaded because it's one of those things where when you spend a lot of time on these things, they're all kind of your children or something. Yeah. And you don't really want to love any of them more than the others. <laughs> right. Um, but surely I, I do think there's a reason we have four copies of the secret book, according to John, the Apocryphon of John. I mean, it is it is complete in the sense that it really covers all the kind of facets of Gnostic teaching and it is well-written and it's interesting and engaging. And so I, I must tell you, I never tire of reading it again. Uh, the other big thing that I really love is the gospel of truth, uh, which is Valentinian and possibly even by Valentinus himself which, uh, you know, is a sermon, and it's, um, it's very compelling. I mean, it's just rhetorically very powerful and, and interesting. And who doesn't love the Gospel of Thomas? Of course. It, it, yes. I mean, you know, it's one of those texts you read, and at times you just have no idea what it's saying. And that's the fun of it, right, <laughs> is trying to figure out what these sayings potentially mean. So... Those are and some then there's a uh, thunder if you're in a really rebellious mood. Oh yeah. yes, thunder perfect mind, or as it's translated in our book, thunder perfect intellect. Um, you know what a great text, and one that um, every time I teach it, um, students bring to it kind of different perspectives, and they see different things in it. This past semester, in the spring semester, I was teaching a class on women and gender in early Christianity. So it was all about women. It wasn't necessarily Gnostic-oriented. But, um, but you know, we read that text because it's a female speaker um, and stuff. And um, the perspectives these women brought to it were, were just totally, it's, it's just great. So... Yes. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, as we get to the end, I'm thinking, what question do I have? I remember meeting John Turner, blessed be his memory, and we had a cigarette outside, as you know, John liked <laughs> to do. I didn't, I wasn't drinking, but you know, John was doing what John does. Yes. And he told me he believes that the there were Gnostic libertine sects, but he couldn't really prove it as a scholar. But he was pretty certain for several reasons. You know, Celsus and Plotinus had no reason to lie. And they're always pretty accurate when they're describing other groups. And uh, he made a good case for it. What about you, David? What do you think? Um, I, I am genuinely, I'm, I'm being totally honest with you. I'm completely agnostic on this point, And I just don't know what to think. Um, for the most, my, you know, my very skeptical self says that, you know, this kind of, these kind of um, lurid libertine reports that you get from church fathers is, is, are just very typical throughout history, not just antiquity, of the way that um, Orthodox Christian writers talk about heretics, Right. And about people we really don't understand. They must be ter doing terrible things. I mean, look at right now. We have all these folks out there who think that there's some sort of like, you know, underground pedophilia organization that, you know, Joe Biden is a part of and all, you know, you know I mean, it's just nuts. Right. Because we kind of we see people we don't like and we 
and we imagine some underground, hidden, horrible things that they are doing. So part of me is like that. about the Jews throughout history. They're practicing magic and stealing children. and Right, yes. And, uh, you know, and a good at, you know, a scholar who's really explained this position well is David Frankfurter, who's someone you should have on sometime, I'll just say. But anyway, you know, who's really talked about stuff like this from ancient reports about the Gnostics to modern reports about satanic ritual abuse in the 1980s, which, you know, if you're old like me, you will remember this hysteria that went on in the 1980s about satanic ritual abuse. I got in trouble for playing Dungeons and Dragons sometimes. (laughs) Yes, because it was going to lead you to these horrible things. Okay, so there's that skeptical part of me who says, no, 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 right? Um, But there's this other part of me that says that uh, by taking that position, we may indeed be missing out on people who had um, what we might call alternative views of sexuality and how we relate to God that need to be taken seriously and uh, that can too easily be dismissed and so forth. So um, there you are. I, I, I remain kind of in a state of, of, of I, I like to think see. of as of, of productive contemplation of this problem and, yeah. uh, and am not inclined to be too doctrinaire on either side. Uh, it's, it's, it's something I love talking to people about because, I mean, our best source for this, of course, is Epiphanius, who lived in the fourth century, who gives these very lurid reports. And he's also one of the few people who says, I've actually met these people and talked to them. So he's not someone who's saying, oh, I just read stuff and I oh, he, I he participated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he says, I have met them. They tried to seduce me into doing these things and so forth and so on. So, um, so you have oh, to gee, kind they're of... twisting my arm. Beautiful yes. women, sex, drugs, and <laughs> exactly. rock and roll. That's oh, exactly gee, what he says. Yes. Beautiful <laughs> women were coming after me. And, uh, you know, you wonder, you know, do you know is if maybe he really did meet people and maybe they're you know so anyway there you go and of course i have great respect for john turner and uh you know if he kind of thought this was possible then that only further makes me think it's not impossible so. yeah well I, i'm 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 gonna take the stance that they were david bowie's gnostics and alexandria <laughs> party i mean even you talk about some translation like hall tossics translations of thunder there's some gender bending in some translation. He's a male in one second, a female. And then you look at Bar Below and you're like, what are you, a man or a woman? So the Gnostics were playing with this whole androgyny stuff. Uh, this is so true. Pretty wild, and, more wild um, than other groups. <laughs> and if um, you and anyone else who's listening to this, who's interested in this, there's really interesting work by a scholar named Jonathan Kahana or Jonathan Kahana Bloom um, that it basically takes this um, position that um, that the Gnostics are in, were indeed deliberately playing with gender and being kind of gender sexuality transgressive in their in their context. And there's something very uh, compelling and interesting about that point of view. So sizzling syzygies, huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
but weren't there weren't there actually priests getting married same-sex priests getting married in those days or is that a myth that i thought it was historically accurate okay well there there are um christian i'm talking about christian yeah yes i totally understand um there this is very interesting yes we have from the late ancient and byzantine period rituals that join two men together in brotherhood and the rituals that we have do not suggest these two men are actually having sex but there's certainly reason to believe that they could have been doing so so yes there are there are rituals that bind together um men in special bonds with each mm, other and this this too is a big discussion often separate from the whole world of gnosticism there's a whole nother group of scholars who discuss these texts and what they might mean so interesting well again yes. it's uh, such a fertile ground of possibility and insight so i love this stuff and but uh, we're getting at the end vance i'm gonna since you are not a sethian and more likely a valentinian <laughs> and you won the war i want to if you have a last question for david go ahead oh boy and you got me uh you got me in uh the state suffrage of no questions city. suffrage <laughs> city <laughs> well you see i have i have made clear to you all gnosis and knowledge so yes i've got it all so i have i have eliminated all doubt and questioning <laughs> I'm, oh, well. I'm still thinking about the syzygies you know <laughs> yes <laughs> oh well, awesome well do you have any favorite uh, Gnostic theme movies uh, that you maybe show your students beyond the obvious ones like uh, The Matrix or The Truman Show? Um, I always show The Matrix, mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. So, you know, really? which, you know, well, it's Philip K. Dick, you know, who was, was, you know, into that. But um, Blade Runner with its whole theme of... Um, you know, what does it mean to be human? And mm. are there people who aren't quite human that we don't know? And do you really know who you yourself really are, whether you are yourself, the self-knowledge and whether you know the true self of yourself? <laughs> that's kind of goofy. But anyway, uh, that's <laughs> that's a Blade Runner thing. So um, so anyway, I, I think that's a that's a great Gnostic movie. Oh, Did I you agree like the with second you. one? Um, I have not seen the second one. It's good, it's, but you're the, not missing anything. <laughs> that's the, it's it's fairly recent. Like it was years later, right? When what when did that come out? I think it was like two or three years ago. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I have not seen the second one. So that's you know, you're inspiring me to write that down and say go and find it and see the second one. So are you gonna see the Matrix four? Well, probably so. Yes. I mean, you know, it must be said, though, that uh, I mean, I, I do believe that the Matrix movies declined mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. over their thing, I think, you know, but um, but definitely simply for the sake of completeness, I will doubtless want to see it. So same here. Same here. Yes. But the, but truly, I mean, although I've just plugged Blade Runner, really, the Matrix is the classic. I mean, that is the classic Gnostic movie. And um, anyone who teaches a class in Gnosticism in college and wants to show a movie, that's that's the one, the first one you have to show. It makes it a lot easier, right, for your students to get the rest of the material. <laughs> oh, for sure. And they, of course, now we're in the 2020s, right? A lot of these kids haven't even seen it before. 
You know, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, when I started to teach Gnosticism, they all knew what the matrix was and they had seen it and so forth. Now, you know, it's like, Yana Reeve, who's that? You know, I mean, they're just, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. They're young and they know nothing. So uh, well, anyway, so now I have to tell them there's this great movie called The Matrix and, this is, you know, so forth. So. Oh, well, oh, well. Maybe All right, we'll come also... back as an agent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been a great conversation. We definitely hope to uh, have you on when you come out with your uh gospel of judas work in 2022 but uh this is the end david uh we'd like to thank you very much for coming once again on aeon bite and uh, we wish you the best of luck with the gnostic scriptures and everything else thank you it was so great to be here i love talking to you guys it was wonderful and vance thank you for coming on as well you bet always my pleasure and there you have it my beloved true seekers our interview with David Brackey, the first part of our summer special and reconnection to the universal mind, gain that gnosis. I am profoundly grateful to his contributions to Gnostic and ancient religious studies in general. Certainly get the second edition of the Gnostic scriptures and certainly check out our last interview with David on the Sethians available in the archives or somewhere in the vast wasteland that is YouTube. We won't miss an awakening beat as we talk to Earl Fontanelle now. Full interview for subscribers, and I humbly appreciate your Aeonic support. I can't do it without you. We need Gnosis more than ever. It may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. We've only begun reaching our potential. Enough of this short drivel. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. With us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Earl Fontanelle to discuss, well, a lot of fun Gnostic sundries. Earl is the host of my favorite podcast out there, The Secret History of Western Esotericism, Schwepp, as he calls it. And as I told Earl, when it comes down to Gnostic podcasts, he's the Beatles and uh, we are the monkeys. But uh, yeah, I love your podcast, Earl, and thanks for coming on my podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for the kind words. You know, the monkeys, the monkeys were personal friends with Frank Zappa. So really, you're oh actually God. maybe not bigging me up as much as you think. I you just are. rose up a hundred steps. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the Beatles didn't hang out with Zappa. No, no. So you know, yeah, but well. um, it's it's interesting. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what, what, what you, yeah, what do you mean by Gnosticism? What is a Gnostic podcast in your eyes? <laughs> That's because, what I was going to ask you first, but you have drawn drawn the guns. <laughs> but first, let's introduce somebody else who's into Gnosticism and has its own his own ideas, and that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good. Uh, not too bad for being part of the monkeys, but I do have to say I play my own instruments. There you go. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I mean, my next quote was going to be, it was Philip K. Dick who said, uh, 
I bring Gnostic Gnosis in a trashy form. And somebody who has raised interest in Gnosticism or just ancient religion in general, maybe more than anybody, is definitely Philip K. Dick. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the guy basically had visions and his, uh, his uh, reading of the Gnostics or ancient esoterica was uh, just the the encyclopedia britannica and look what he did so sometimes it's a gut and i think that was uh when i started this podcast earl i didn't know anything about gnosticism i wanted to learn i just you know i had read the the gnostic gospels by ling pagels and i always Mm -hmm. tell people if you want to start with gnosticism don't start there because it's just not the it's not a good book but uh anyway but I, and of course there was the whole um da vinci code and i was like well who are these guys i considered myself an ecumenical roman catholic back then okay so i decided i was going to start a podcast on gnosticism and i was very lucky in 2006 before the golden age of podcasting to be able to uh get on the show individuals like karen king uh, bart ehrman robert price uh, marvin meyer i mean uh, stephan heller tobias Churton. i mean a whole spectrum of people who saw gnosticism or the gnostics differently and i just kept doing it and uh these days if you want to ask i will tell you yes i do think I agree with uh, Bart Ehrman and um, April DeConnick and Berger Pearson, uh, mm-hmm. Dylan Burns. I agree that the term is not perfect, but it's useful. What do you think? Um, I don't really have a, I don't really have skin in the game, if you know what I mean. Uh, I, yeah, is it whether or not you want to use Gnostic as as Gnosticism, let's say, as a term of in scholarship um it depends a lot on whom you're talking to um because as you know you know so we've just had a a quick little chat and uh the name like philip k dick came up right Mm -hmm. so um if he's a gnostic and uh the matrix is gnostic and um what else is gnostic um you're going to bring any, in Juan Culiano's famous quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything. So, yeah, exactly. Like, um, so Culiano is a perfect starting point for uh, one thing you have to get your head around, which is that in the modern imaginary, Gnosticism and Gnosis have like a number of radically diverging meanings, very different meanings. And um, you might run the risk of like evoking those for, exa- for example, you want to talk about this, this um, historical late antique group of people who are behind these texts that, Bur- that Burns and, Il- and Co. would say, we can call these Gnostics, right? The Apocryphon of John, the, um, you know, the Zostrianos, the Elogenes, all these books. Marsanes, probably. Uh, if you're talking about those guys and you want to call them Gnostics, that's cool. As long as you're the people you're talking to realize that you're talking about specifically those guys and not about anything to do with Philip K. Dick or uh, secret liberatory knowledge that may or may not transcend rational thought or you, you name it, you know, this, you know, the story. So that's, it's, it's a term that lends itself to sloppiness. Um, It doesn't have to, but it has that danger. So that's, that's my reservation about it. Aside from that, I don't really have a problem. I mean, Iamblichus talks about the Gnostics. You know, there are people in antiquity talking about the Gnostics. Porphyry does too. So for outsiders who aren't necessarily 
haters. Because obviously, you know, Irenaeus talks about the Gnostics and he's a total hater. But um, he talks about the Gnosis, so-called, right? But, um, and Porphyry is kind of a hater too, but Iamblichus mentions them in a, in a list of other philosophers who have an opinion on, I think, on matter. He's like, these guys, you know, so Plato thinks this, da, 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 the Gnostics think this, da, 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 and this guy thinks this. So he's, he's not hating at all. He's just like listing them as another group of philosophers. Who he means exactly is another question. <laughs> What's your take on it? What's your take? You think it's a useful term. Do you think it's a useful term for specifying a specific, a, a narrowly focused group of texts in antiquity and the people who wrote those texts? I would say so. Um, again, I, w- I would certainly agree with uh, Bracky and uh, Bentley and Layton that we can at least start with the Sethians. And then yeah. we can sort of go there in degrees. It's uh, funny, um, you were talking with uh, with Williams in your podcast, a great interview, mm. and he talks about yeah. how in the Tree of Gnosis, a book I love, Culiano, he seems to try to knock out what is a Gnostic, but he kind of makes the opposite argument that there is, maybe not on a scholarly way, there's not, not a continuum, but you can see this continuum of thought and I don't think there's anything wrong with spreading out with the Sethians and then seeing how that goes in history. I would put the Manichaeans. I would definitely put the Cathars. Again, I, I guess I lean closer with Birger Pearson and April DeConnick if you catch me on the right day on yeah. this. But there's no perfect uh, term. I mean, terms like Buddhism and Hinduism were also created by English scholars, Western scholars. Sure. Buddhism sure. is so varied and multiple outside of the figure of the Buddha and their ideas of enlightenment. I mean, it's just in Hinduism, Hinduism is just sort of a, an umbrella term that you put over a land with so many religions and gods, but Hinduism is we a have to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we make it work. And I mean, I mean, look at Christianity. I think Michael Williams also agreed. There was no Christianity until the second century. I mean, from the moment it started, Peter and Paul were at each other's throat about what was Christianity or salvation or yeah. so um, I don't see a problem. I, you made me laugh or Michael Williams made me laugh because he uh, in the interview, he says, well, we have no Joe Gnosis. We have Valentinus, Sethians and all that. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe I'd call this podcast in search of Joe Gnosis. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah. And yeah, we have to keep in mind that if we were trying to reconstruct ancient Gnosticism, it's a bit like, I mean, someone famously said this, I don't even know who it was, but it's a bit like trying to reconstruct Christianity as a whole. If we only had, you know, sort of half of Paul, a bit of John and uh, a couple fragments of Mark and like not even a church, right? Not even the ruins of one church to, to look at the physical remains, just some texts in bad condition. Oh, and we had like, we had uh, diatribes against the Christians from Porphyry and Kelsus and people like that. So we knew what their opponents said about them. And then we tried to kind of reconstruct what the religion was like. We would have a very skewed view of, of Christianity if that were the case. So, yeah, yeah it'd be about, it'd be, uh, it'd be about the same, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think the term works. And Vance, what do you think before Earl ask you, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> well, you know, um, for me, since I kind of backed into this being kind of a Gnostic before I even showed up at Eon Byte, um, 
I had kind of started to develop my own feelings and thoughts about it and based on Genesis, as I related before, but it's to me, Gnosis and the Gnostics are like, um, like that famous elephant parable where, you know, there's an elephant and the blind men are feeling different parts of it. I think there's a common thread in Gnosis and that's man's relation to God, man's conception of God and man's relation to the world and his conception of the world. And we have a certain consistency, I think among most groups that a, we're not separate little worms that God created. Like we're part of God in some way. And I think all the different Gnostic sects probably describe it a little differently. Um, the world is kind of a construct. That's kind of a common theme. And um, we are kind of temporarily imprisoned in it. And beyond that, we're supposed to kind of discover for ourselves, you know, what the situation is with God, man, and the world. So that that's the way I see it. And that kind of encompasses everything we do at Eon Bite, I think. And that's hmm. how I kind of cordon in all the different types of, you know, Gnostic uh you know, flavors in, into it. That's the way I think of Gnosticism. Cool. So it's a, it's a, a way of thinking. It's like a kind of a, a few, it's like a few basic assumptions about reality and humans place in it. That's yes. the sort of essence of Gnosticism and it can take different forms. So then if you posit, um, Vance, you didn't posit this, but let's just say you did. If you posited the Sethians and the Cathars, both as being Gnostics, you do, you're not necessarily positing any historical connection between these groups. You're just saying they had the same, they, they both had the same vibe. Right. They both had the same idea. So they're Gnostic. It doesn't matter if they knew each other, knew each other's texts, anything like right. that. Right. They okay. chew the orthodoxy, right? That, that's one of the biggest uh, themes too. They Because the orthodoxy says, you know, the contrary of what I just related. Mm. So though, yeah, exactly, it's it's cool. and of course, Gnostic in the historical context means a lot, uh, different as you related, uh, Errol. Yeah. So so getting back to your question about um, the usefulness of the term, the reason I would have reservations about using it widely and without quotation marks is for this reason. Like I've just I haven't had much of a chance to listen to Eon Bite, although we I, my wife and I listened to a bit the other day and we got some good um, some good movie clips and stuff there was some matrix in there which made me happy but um i had no idea what how you guys would answer the question what do you think gnosticism is do you see what i mean now if you had a a podcast about i don't know platonism or uh christianity or what's another word magic let's say magic another extremely contested extremely difficult or to paganism define. my god well paganism there you go um I would, I think coming in, I would, I would probably have a, had a better idea of what you were on about an assumption. And I would be closer to right than I did with you guys. Do you see what I mean? Like when, when people say Gnostic, you just don't know what the hell they're on about a priori. So that's, but it's cool. You know, that's fine. You can embrace that as well. You can like play with it. Um, I think that's uh, it. It's an, it, I see it as uh, like Philip K. Dick, an aesthetic, uh, uh, a philosophy, as much as I didn't like uh, Vogelin's work, uh, Professor Vervanki in Toronto made me realize there is there is a Gnostic philosophy or aesthetic or meaning that has gone across history. And like you say, Earl, the, the, the great thing is to play with it. I mean, these days, for example, 
I agree with April DeConnick and uh, Dr. Um, Justin Sledge from uh, from Detroit uh, that Gnosticism and Hermeticism was the first New Age movement in history. They just threw everything together for for the middle class, for this sort of counterculture, magical uh, stew that went against the grain and was really uh, was attractive to the margin, perhaps the a lot of the marginal people out there. At the same time, these days, I like to play with the idea that Gnosticism is a, a mixture of simulation theory, that mm-hmm. we are not in a false reality, we are in a fake reality that's been coded to keep us asleep for some reason, maybe for our own good, because it's the Father's plan, maybe because the Archons are feeding on us, and a mixture of sort of cosmic Lovecraftian horror the, where you are in, a, you are not alone in the universe, but whatever is above <laughs> you in the universe thing. is not very friendly yeah. to you. You're not alone in the universe, but you'd be better if you were. Yeah. Yes, if, and, if, if only you... the universe were an uncaring materialist, uh, you know. Yeah. And if you explore too far, if you go too far at the edge of town, bomb, these monsters are going to show up. So, yeah. but I have fun with it. It's this sort of mixture that I play with. But, but I do follow the scholarly, um, you know, David Brackey, April, whatever comes out, I love to follow it. So here's a question for you. You've had, you have, um, you're doing this podcast, which I guess is kind of it fully embracing, uh, I guess what you'd call it. Well, if, if you guys were magic people rather than Gnostics, I would say a practitioner standpoint, right? So scholars of magic often dis- distinguish between themselves and practitioners, though there's a dirty secret in the world of scholarship of magic. Don't tell anyone that a lot of the scholars are practitioners, right? And you could even make the argument that you can't really study magic very in all its flavors until you're a practitioner, you know? Yeah, like Culiano, he practiced hermetic magic. He did some crazy stuff, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, do, you, do you know the, the anecdote about his, uh, his divination class? Yeah, yeah, but share with the audience. I've, I've done it. Well, before, some, so. some of his students allegedly said, Professor Culiano, teach us about divination he said no 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 i can't and and the the whole like three refusals trope plays out and finally he says okay i will under one condition for your final exam you have to predict the future successfully and they were like hell yeah and they did apparently and he did uh he did apparently i know he did at least one practice which is um elmaramul which is this uh, islamicate what they sometimes call geomancy uh islamicate um form of divination are you familiar with it yeah it makes it into the latinate world through agrippa and then once it's in agrippa it gets printed and then everyone knows about it in in the western european occult sphere uh he was into doing that so i know that he did he would do that at parties and stuff he would like it was like his party trick he would he would tell people their darkest inner secrets and freak them out by doing a geomantic throws And he could really go into parties and he would remember everybody's name and birthday, walk out, come back an hour later or something, and he could just recall hundreds of people's names and everything. It's just, mm. this shit works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as practitioners, um, is that so what was I was that your say, question was going? Yeah. Well, you guys, let's say, I guess you guys are Gnostic practitioners, whatever that means. Or you are, let's say you are Gnostics of some kind, right? Um. You're not you're not shouting me down, so I assume you're happy with that, at least provisionally. I um, honestly I never call myself I, I just call myself a heretic because okay. I feel if I call myself a Gnostic, I'm being sort of marginalizing the Mandeans. <laughs> Word. 
I'm a Gnostic practitioner in the same sense as I, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is, um, I never go to church. I don't go to a Gnostic church. I don't have a Gnostic temple or, or, or altar or anything like that. And, uh, but a, but a worldview. A yes, view. it's it's my worldview, and well, for me, it's a very deep thing. Hmm. Um, so what's interesting to me as a scholar of Western esotericism is that you are you're breaking the whatever it is, the fourth wall, the invisible wall, the the uh, practitioner scholar wall, because you, you're interviewing all these super heavyweight um, scholars, right? on your show and they're coming on going like, Oh, these, these, I mean, are they coming on going these crazy Gnostics want to talk to me? I guess I'll do it anyway. Obviously people like April DeConnick are, are wide open to the, the wild and wacky world of Gnosticism in all its many forms. And they'd be totally down. But, um, you know, when I think of the Berger Pearson's of the world, the kind of stayed establishment academics, um, I mean, they don't even study Gnosticism in a modern context at all. Really. They're, they're really interested in, unless I'm wrong, they're really interested in, ancient late you know late antique texts and interpreting the origins of christianity and stuff like this but seemingly they're com- happy to come on your show and talk about gnosticism mm-hmm. yeah yeah we want to have a, a varied uh landscape and options for uh for the audience of course it's always a joy i, I have interviewed birger pearson and uh Inar thomason we we definitely have shared a lot of the guests and uh i think uh Maybe they're not focused on the modern ideas, but I feel they really work hard to walk the walk. I mean, they certainly get it. Right. How to the best of the abilities of reconstructing. I admire their passion and dedication and empathy. I think whether it's Michael Williams, Inar Thomason, Birger Pearson, or Marvin, mean, they have empathy. They're they're connected to these ancients. They're trying to figure them out. Yeah. 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 But Earl, let me ask you, I mean, another problematic term would be esotericism. Now now we're in your your field of strength, and I use the word esoterica or esoterica simply to replace a cult, which is lazy of me, but I feel a cult is the worst term. I mean, we're, we're in an age where nothing is hidden, and very soon Wicca will be more than Christianity, so Christianity will be a cult. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what is the Western esoterism? And like you say a lot, uh, well, Plato's esoteric, one of the most famous philosophers in history. Yeah, well, so that's a, a huge question. Uh, the Western esotericism as a scholarly construct, and this is something I talk about a lot in my podcast, but I could just kind of maybe try to sum it up for your listeners. Um, is a made-up modern category. That's the first thing. The second thing is it was actually made up by Western esotericists, not by scholars. So it, the origins of it really come from, I'm, I'm not an expert on this exact, the exact names and dates here, but basically people who are dissatisfied with theosophies turn to India in the 19th century. You're the Arthur Edward Waits of the world, right? The Arthur Mackins of the world, the, the occultists who wanted their holy grail mysteries they didn't want all this eastern stuff they thought we have our own what do we have a western esotericism right so it comes out of dissatisfied theosophists and other breakaway groups from from the occult orders but especially the theosophical society i believe in the late 19th century who were for whatever reasons you know they had all had different reasons they were trying to found a kind of western mystery school or refound a western mystery school and that was Western esotericism. Then 
if you fast forward a good more than half a century, you have the Eronos meetings, which you've probably talked about at some point on your podcast, right? Um, you've got um, Kispel there, who's a great uh, scholar of Gnosticism. He's a he's an Eronos guy. He was like the Gnostic, you know. He 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 was like <laughs> the, they ticked the Gnostic box with him. You had Sholem doing the Kabbalah. You, yeah, yeah. And um, Eliad has got shamanism. Of course. But he so so those guys were you know this kind of incredibly incredibly influential but very little studied very little known about group of intellectuals who really had a huge impact on the 20th century 20th century uh western culture european culture but also western more broadly you know people henri corbin is read in the islamic world as a as an islamic uh mm. theologian mm. you know i think this yeah. stuff is really really influential in in very unlikely places you wouldn't expect and uh, the, of this, I'd say like the second or third generation of Erano scholars who started coming in the 60s was Antoine Febvre, who founded, who's a scholar of Western esotericism. He's sort of the father of the field, really. I'm, I'm oversimplifying. And he basically founds this journal called Aries, the Journal of Esotericism. And that goes on for the first um, sort of run. Then it stops, then it restarts. In the meantime, Febvre has got a bit disenchanted with the wooliness and mystical oogly boogliness of a lot of the work that's being done. Uh, and he really wants a, a historicist, rigorous turn, you know, evidence-based um, history of religions style approach to this material. When Aries is refounded, it's the journal of Western esotericism. And it's really based on that. So if you write, a, for example, if you write an article on astrology for Aries and you start speaking like an astrologer, you just won't get printed. If you do an article on Gnosticism and you start talking about, and I have had the Gnosis, they're like, yeah, you, you want a different <laughs> magazine. So that's the idea. And so that's how Western Esotericism came about as a scholarly construct. Now, it's, it's like kind of bullshit on a number of levels to talk about it as one tradition but it serves a few very important purposes that I think outweigh the negative side. Um, since Western esotericism became a recognized field of historical study, uh, you can suddenly go to a respectable normal university and say, I want to study Kabbalah. I want to study astrology. I want to study um, any number of genuinely important historical phenomena of Western culture that for a long time were being brushed under the rug because they were embarrassing or whatever, right? I mean, people used to get like when when John Dillon, the great scholar of Platonism, right? When he studied Plato at Oxford in the 1960s, late 50s, early 60s, he they didn't even teach the Timaeus. What? Because it was seen as not being Plato's serious philosophy and it had all this kind of oogly boogly occult stuff in it. Do you see what I'm saying? No. Now, now you won't even have and and most philosophy departments at universities didn't even have didn't have anyone who's who could teach Plato because Plato was seen as old, dusty, occult, not important. Blah. Um, now you won't have a philosophy department without someone who can at least teach Plato in some basic way. So these these inroads are made in academe by people butting their heads against them and forcing them to open. And so that's one of the things Western esotericism has done. And that's why all my mates can study really interesting stuff at university. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah, you said so that Plotinus had the same problem. Oh, he's too mystic. Oh, yeah, Plotinus was, you know, when E.R. Dodd studied Plotinus in like the 20s and 30s, he was the, I mean, in the Anglo sphere, I think he was the only person working on Plotinus. There were a few French scholars as well. But in the Anglo sphere, he was, I, I think, literally the only major scholar working on Plotinus. And he not only had to, he didn't just publish books on Plotinus. He published articles and books arguing why it's okay to study Plotinus, right? And the only reason he was interested in Plotinus, and here's a little bit of secret history for you, is because he was, well, partly because he was head of the uh, Society for Psychical Research in one year, and he was a, a card-carrying member, so he's very interested in paranormal stuff, and so highly altered states of consciousness that are typical of a, of mystical Platonist writing were something that interested him, but also he knew Stephen McKenna, the great Irish oh. uh, modernist and translator of Plotinus. So McKenna, who wasn't a scholar, who's just a total badass, had uh, translated Plotinus off his own back from the tables of pubs around Dublin, and uh, that kind of fed into um, Dodds's interest because Dodds was an Irishman. Fascinating. And I, I love your podcast because, uh, well, when I, when we do ours, uh, we get what we can because scholars are busy or whatever yeah. and books come out when they come out and so forth. But I love how there is a continuum in Schwepp. You start out with the pre-Socratic and then you, you, I can tell you're trying to go through time yeah, it's through late antiquity. How, how were you able to, uh, wing that? Good job. What do you mean? What, I just made it chronological. That's it. This is a chronological it. thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complete ripoff from um, Peter Adamson's excellent podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Oh. Um, if, you, if you know that, which is just a super basic, well, not super basic, uh, let's say uh, for, for the general listener, not specialist listener, intro to allegedly all that's important in philosophy in the Western world. Or and Indian, they have an Indian series. So they, they say philosophy, full stop. And he tries not to have any gaps, except I'm even more obsessed with not having gaps than him. So I cover stuff that I probably don't even need to. Like at the moment, we're covering Mithra, the, the cult of Mithras. Right, right. Great it's not really Western esotericism because they die out and then they're gone and that's it. That's the end. <laughs> but <laughs> if you're a real stickler for the uh, being thorough, you need to talk about Mithras because, of course, you're going to need to talk about Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, where he tells about the secret Platonist doctrines hidden within the mysteries of Mithras, which is pretty awesome stuff. Then you want to talk about the Emperor Julian, of course, who is an initiate of Mithras, and he's super into Mithras, and almost manages to, you know, because like Christ has sort of replaced the the Deo Sol Invictus in the later Roman Empire as the, as the, the quasi-imperial cult. And he almost manages to flip the script again and be like, ah, Deus in Sol Invictus <laughs> is back, you know? He but, is. Uh, but then he dies. Uh, but then, if we're looking at the early 17th century, 17th, sorry, late 17th century, early 18th century, you have William Stukeley, of course, the, uh, the great antiquarian and lover of Stonehenge and Avebury and all these sorts of places with his druids and his uh esoteric interpretation of the temple of solomon he was a he was a, a mate of newton's the later newton and he's uh totally into the mithraic mysteries again because the mithraic are being dug up in in london and stuff like this so you know 
they, they do they do make an appearance here and there so it's it's good to cover that stuff and are you going to just uh, loop back for when you get done with late antiquity or just go through history all no, the no. way to we're heading to we're heading it's a, it's at least a 15 year project and we're heading for for now oh wow that's awesome yeah 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 it's not it's nothing to do with antiquity Wow, that's great. How did you, when did this come? Uh, how did you decide to go on this incredible uh, epic journey, which I love? Uh, Say something mystical, a voice told you. Uh. Yes. Did you ever, do you, do you guys know Cerebus? Cerebus the Aardvark, the comic? No, no. No. You're probably better off, but um, <laughs> it reminds me a bit of this. There's this, this kind of, this comic book called Cerebus that was put out independently in the 80s. And it's this interesting kind of combination of the deeply, deeply stupid with the kind of sublimely wonderful at the same time, and, and also deeply tedious from time to time. It was, it was obsessively self-published by this one guy, and he just put it out year after year. And at some point, I think he took some acid, and he had a vision of basically like he would make, he would make it to, I don't know, Cerebus issue... 666 or something like that like some some important number if maybe it was issue 1000 so basically he just did it he was like this is my mission and he did this comic year after year after year for decades and then he finally did it uh i did not have a moment like that with the schwet but uh it's a history it's a it's you know it's a, like a kind of long form historical um exploration of the material and you just follow it where it leads really which is up till now or even maybe to like the 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 cybernostic future dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the apocalypse yeah well that's yeah that's very cool and of course i'm sure at 15 years you're gonna have to do some self-corrections all you need is something come out of the sands of egypt oh, or something like that and you're like oh my god now i gotta go back and fix this like doctor yeah. who <laughs> for sure for sure um, look, I just did an interview with a very good scholar, a uh, friend of mine called Bink Hallam, who's a curator of Arabic scientific manuscripts at the British Library. And I would say it was on magic squares. You know, you know what magic squares are? These sort of, uh, you, you get them in uh, Gnostic literature, actually, there's, um, here and there. But they're these, you know, three by three, four by four, five by five squares with a grid. And in the grid, there's numbers and the numbers all add up to the same number. Oh yeah. Across yeah. up and down and at the diagonals, right? You see them in uh, Agrippa and then in, in lots of post Agrippan occultism, especially occultism with an astral flavor to it. And um, in the Islamic world, they're just absolutely ubiquitous in astral uh, ritual of every kind and astral talisman making, which was like the main technology of, <laughs> of the, of the later Islamic middle ages. Um, so this, this interview I did with my friend Bink, uh, I would say a good 50% of it. And this is like being conservative was brand new research based by him, based on completely unpublished, unedited manuscripts that most hardly anyone has looked at for the last however many hundreds or thousands of years right so this is like completely cutting edge stuff this has never been published it won't even conceivably be in a kind of edited available to the public state for another 30 years a lot of it 
or 40 or 50 years, right? So that's, that's the fluid state of our knowledge of the past. And obviously when you're doing something like that in a podcast, yeah, things change over a 15 year period, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. But that's, that's, it's exciting to see these yeah, changes. Oh, you wish sure. it could happen more often as I can't Absolutely. wait to translate these Manichaean texts or this and that. So we mm. could get some new data. <laughs> We've got some killer uh, interviews already in the can for Manichaean, by the way. Oh my gonna, God. Not going to spoil anything there. Can't wait. Can't wait for that, uh, for the, for the gnosis of Mani. And um, going back to uh, the Gnostics, what are some of your favorite quote unquote or so-called Gnostic texts mm. or Nag Hammadi library texts? Let's well, but they're not, my favorites are not in the Nag Hammadi, but that's probably because I read Greek and I don't read Coptic. Um, uh, so I would not say, Nag, but Nag Hammadi, it's got to be the, the, the four different versions of Apocryphon of John, which has got an, a psychedelic ascent account and totally crazy apophatic um the, the unsaying of of god which i love which is a genre i'm a big fan of right really awesome um but i dig basilides we don't know much about basilides we have hardly anything he wrote but he has this one there's one passage preserved in some heresiographer or other in which he describes the beginning of all things are you familiar with this this line mm-hmm. yeah yeah it would be good to cite who this is from so people can go find it um this is the schwepp episode i got soul and i'm super bad basilides of alexandria now he says ah pseudo was it's the hippolytus on basilides's beyond ineffable god i always was taught that this was the pseudo hippolytus but apparently that's uh, according to david litwa who's who's just retranslated the text um and I believe done in addition, this is, there's nothing pseudo about this guy. Oh. Uh, but anyway, the author of pseudo politis so-called, um, preserves us a little bit of facilities, which is absolutely mind-blowingly cool. And I will just say, this is from his work on heresies, book 720, which is in the Patrologia Graeca, uh, 16, volume 16, Three, three thousand three hundred and two for all you mavens <laughs> out there. Um, in which he basically unsays God, unsays the unsaying of God. He apophatizes his way out of any uh, conceptuality we might be tempted to impute to the the divine Father, in a way that leaves no doubt that this guy was like deeply uh, apophatic in a time, first century, when that was not a thing yet, really. It wasn't really a thing. We have Philo of Alexandria. We have, maybe there were other thinkers looking in this direction at the time who don't survive. But um, Basilides really stands out to me. And plus he had just a crazy cosmology. <laughs> he gave us a Braxis. And, um... Did he? Did he give us a Braxis? Good question. I would have to say so. Isn't that the first time it's mentioned? I didn't even know it was mentioned in the, in facilities. That's great. See, you guys. Yeah, he's the head up. archon. Um, okay. Now, according to, it might be Tertullian who says that, but either right. there's Tertullian and Hippolytus, and they give us sort of contradicting versions of 
who Abraxas is and Basilides as well. But um, yeah, obviously Jung uh, took a rift off of that. Um, Seven Sermons of the Dead. Well, this has been an incredible uh, conversation, and we are getting to the end. Uh, again, for the audience, please check out Schwepp. Uh, Earl, could you, uh, I'll have this on the show notes, but you, could, could you tell the audience in audio form where they can find out more about you? Yeah, the Schwepp is a secret history of Western esotericism podcast, www.schwepp.net. And that's it. That's my, my project. Thank you guys very much for the interesting conversation. It's delightful. I know a lot more about Gnosis now. Oh, anytime. We look forward to talking to you more, Earl. It's been a great conversation, and this is what we live for. And Vance, thanks for being here as well. Oh, yeah. Hey, it was my pleasure, Earl. Great conversation. I'm sure mm. everybody will love it. And um, I'll look, I'm going to check out your podcast for sure and your website. Yeah, right he's on. got Mithras going. He's got Mithras going. So All right. Very Take the cool bull by the stuff. horns, right? Boom! <laughs> Boom! Had to have one pun before the show ended. Just yeah, one. I well, I got one. Uh, God, can I? I don't think I can top that. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna say thanks. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. It's a. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, yeah, take it very easy. Stay esoteric. Stay Gnostic. Always. <laughs> We're looking for Joe Gnosis with Michael Williams forever. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part with the most cool and most erudite Earl Fontanelle. In our second part, Earl breaks down the sophisticated and non-dualist ideas of Basilides. You'll love how Earl gives us an incredible and inspirational understanding of Plotinus and his cosmology, including knowing the One and why Plotinus and the Gnostics butted heads so often. We'll discuss some Christian mysticism, including Clement of Alexandria, as well as what is Gnosis and its visionary possibilities. We'll loop back to the term itself, Gnosticism, and why or why not it should be discarded. And Earl explains the milieu in Alexandrian ancient times that gave birth to such cool mystics as the Gnostics, Hermetics, Neoplatonists, and more, and speculate how Christianity changed it all for, well, not forever, because we got Aeon Bite and the secret history of Western esotericism here in the 21st century, and much more. So please become a Patreon at Patreon, an AB Prime member, Rockfin subscriber, or Red Circle subscriber for the full Gnosis. I won't get into too much details on this show, but check out the show notes or shoot me a message. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need stellar sound for your audiobook, podcast intro, commercial, or film narration or whatever you need. I just started late last year and have completed several books and other projects with, yes, stellar results for the clients. And don't forget the Finding Hermes program, an upgrade for AB Prime members or patrons. We meet twice a month for intimate and profound meetings to get into Gnostic rituals and history. 
We've already done presentations on Gnostic sex magic, entheogens, the practices of the Nascenes and the Sethians, Mary Magdalene, and so much more. I provide extra materials and resources as well after these meetings, so you can grasp and experience the ethos of Gnosticism and apply it to your spiritual life if you want. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.